I, uh, yeah, uh, another brother got called up. I just got notified outside the, uh, my, uh, office. Um. Is your brother? Uh, my wife's brother. My wife's brother. the morning of Sunday, October 8th. This is a special episode of our podcast. Here's what we know as of this morning in Israel. There are 600 confirmed killed Israelis. There are thousands wounded, many number of them in severe condition as well as critical condition. There are dozens of Israeli hostages in Gaza. In a coordinated assault on land, through the air and sea, hundreds of Palestinian militants, terrorists, infiltrated more than 20 Israeli towns, cities, kibbutzim, and army bases, burning houses, killing and kidnapping soldiers and civilians, including women and children. And to be clear, the hostages that have been taken are largely women and children. Battles between Hamas and the IDF inside 20 villages and cities are still raging over 24 hours since this began. Hamas had taken over two IDF bases that contained tanks and armored vehicles and other military equipment. Hamas had stormed an outdoor party near Kibbutz Reim in the south, which 3,000 young Israelis participated in. And as I said, they killed and kidnapped dozens of them. Thousands of rockets have been fired on Israeli targets, including in Tel Aviv, in the center of Israel. This is like no war Israel has ever fought before, in that the enemy is inside Israeli territory conducting operations. Yes, there have been wars like the 67 Six-Day War and the 73 Yom Kippur War, some of which was fought on Israeli territory, but not like this, where you have the enemy going door-to-door, village-by-village, in towns, in cities, in kibbutzim, just systematically rounding up, either slaughtering or rounding up innocent Israelis and taking them back over the border. This is new, which means a 20-year defense paradigm has collapsed. That paradigm is how Israel has conducted its operations and its, effectively, its coexistence, its military operations and its coexistence with Hamas-run Gaza. It's also a new paradigm in terms of how Israel deals with hostages taken by its enemy. And that is one of the topics we are going to discuss today, if Israel's entire approach to dealing with hostages is about to change. And if it does, was that a major miscalculation by Hamas? It is one of the areas of focus in our conversation today with our guest, Haviv Retigur, who our listeners have heard before. He's been on this podcast to talk about the judicial reform crisis. He's a senior political analyst at the Times of Israel. He was a longtime reporter for the Times of Israel. He's also working on a book. Haviv was also a combat medic in the IDF. This is an informative conversation. It is an intense conversation. As Haviv and I are speaking, he has very close family and very close friends who are being called up in the reserves in real time. In fact, we had to take a couple breaks during the conversation because he was getting updates, and all Israeli schools, understandably, are closed 
in Israel today. So his four young children are at home with him while he's recording this. So if you hear a little bit of background, please uh, indulge it. Uh, One housekeeping note, we typically release episodes on Mondays and Thursdays. We will change that tempo in the days ahead. We will be releasing episodes much more frequently. Tomorrow, Monday, we will have a conversation with Brett Stevens from the New York Times, who has a piece out now that we will be discussing. We will also have analysts and officials from Israel and from the United States in the days ahead. But right now, Haviv Ratikur on Israel's war. This is Call Me Back. This morning, I welcome back to this podcast Haviv Retigur, who is a senior political analyst for the Times of Israel. He was a longtime reporter for the Times of Israel. He's also working on a book. He was a combat medic in the IDF, where he served in the reserves until he was 40 years old, which means he's just out of that uh, age bracket, but has not only been reporting and writing about what is happening on the ground, but has lots of family and friends who are serving, who are being called up, and tragically, who have been killed. Haviv, thank you for being with us this morning. Dan, thanks for having me. Can you, can we begin by just uh, telling us where things stand now, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, New York, Sunday mid to late afternoon, Israel time? What do we know now? Well, we uh, we had uh, just uh, updated the death toll up to 600, uh, almost entirely civilians. Um, yesterday at 6.30 in the morning, Hamas launched an uh, attack that uh, was very, very well planned. We understand quite well now how it happened. Um, it started with strikes on uh, all kinds of uh, technological um, cameras and sensors uh, and, and specific uh, guard towers along the Gaza border. Um, and then proceeded to a ground assault on a border crossing, at which point uh, distracting the IDF in that way. um, In other places, the border was breached, and hundreds of uh, Hamas uh, fighters crossed over and spent uh, the next 10 hours, something like that, um, hunting down Israeli civilians, uh, essentially uh, just massacring everyone they could find, kidnapping dozens, including little children, um, and filming all of it, filming all of it and placing it all on TikTok, uh, sending it on Twitter, and making sure it gets to Israelis, making sure the world sees, celebrating it, uh, you know, desecrating bodies. Um, there are reports of, of much worse things, uh, verified reports. Um, and, uh, you know, at least 1,500... When you of, say verified reports of worse things, what 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 can you... I mean, just, just so... Yeah. Uh, what is an example of a worse there, thing? There, you know, it's... it's I'm just going to say it. I don't know if the audience or listeners will understand, but it's hard to talk about this uh, outside of Israel right now. We're having an internal Hebrew language... Uh, experience and then there's the world watching and it's hard to then translate and go out and it 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 um it feels it feels different it's we are a family in mourning and it is hard to but um the the what i am referring to is uh, places where uh the hamas uh, terrorists walk into a family home uh shoot dead the two parents and take the child's cell phone and 
open up a Facebook Live broadcast on the child's Facebook account of, of everything that they're doing. I'm talking about uh, taking uh, a family with two, two little kids, uh, in loading them into a, uh, into a car to take them into Gaza. And uh, as the Hamas are filming, um, the little kid says to, their, to, his, to his mother in uh, Hebrew, are they going to kill us? And the mother says, they said they won't. Uh, I'm talking about um, uh, footage Hamas released from inside Gaza of a bleeding uh, young woman in the back of a, a car that they grab by the hair and and uh, and and essentially parade through the streets. Uh, and I'm talking about uh, bodies that were found of women who had been raped. Um, I'm talking about more than that for hours upon hours upon hours on Saturday. Israelis watched their phones and watched their Twitter and wa Hebrew language Twitter, Hebrew language Facebook, Hebrew language TikTok, and saw these this this footage and and not not just the Hamas footage, but Israeli families sitting in these homes, trying to hide in these locked homes, uh, begging to be rescued, and the IDF was nowhere to be found. Uh, there were many places where local police, you know, just faced off against the gunmen and. The gunmen were there with assault rifles. The local police pulled out their handguns. Uh, some 30 police officers, including very senior ones, were killed in these engagements. Uh, but they're police. They're traffic police. You know, they were not uh, equipped to deal with this. The collapse of the IDF in that moment was catastrophic. And the experience of sitting hour after hour after hour and watching um, in that way um, the massacre uh and and the kind and it was um it it was a thrilled massacre there was jubilation there was laughter there was there were parades in gaza with these bodies there are children right now living children 4 years old 6 years old in tunnels under gaza um uh, held by Hamas, and Hamas has even said, probably as part of its psychological warfare, maybe it's even true, that it doesn't even know where all of the different, uh, you know, to prevent an Israeli rescue operation, it, it spread them throughout Gaza, uh, the dozens of hostages that it took. And, and so we are, um, the day after, um, and trying to understand what has happened, the death toll of just bodies found within Israel, is now 600, almost entirely, as I said, civilians. There's more than 2,000 wounded, uh, many of them. Uh, I, I, I don't know the exact number. Last time I looked, and I was 500 wounded ago, but last time I looked, there were over 100 that were uh, serious or critical. So there's going to be more dead by the time, you know, by the time this all ends. Um, and that's that's it. That's, that's where things stand right now. Uh, Haviv, I just want to better understand the casualty count because when we went to bed here in the United States on Saturday night we were the number that was all over the press was 300 I'd spoken to people during the day in Israeli security circles and in the US government and they were saying they ex expected the number to escalate considerably on Sunday the casualty number and it wasn't clear to me why that was the case and I certainly didn't expect a doubling of casualties although someone did say to me it's going to get to to 600 pretty quickly. Um, so what what accounts for this dramatic uptick in um, in casualties? Um, th there were hundreds missing. There were hundreds of people missing, and um, Israeli 
social media, especially Facebook, was filled, filled. Um, my entire my entire feed uh, was pictures of family members nobody could get in touch with. Um, some some families got lucky, and uh, there were people who slept in the desert overnight after fleeing uh, the Hamas gunmen, uh, and then in the morning showed up in the nearby town police department, and a few dozen, uh, then the police called their families and told them they were fine, but... Uh, just in the last couple of hours, they found 240 more bodies. Uh, those are people that everyone's been looking for. So the missing have turned, as of course, when, when you have hundreds of people missing, every passing hour, right, increases the likelihood that they're dead. And what do we know about the number of hostages taken to Gaza? We think um, that there are several dozen, maybe around 50, maybe more. Uh, we know the stories of uh, quite a few individuals, um, so we can give, you know, we can say for sure that uh, there's an 84-year-old grandmother. Uh, we can say for sure that there is a four-year-old boy. We can say for sure that there are two little girls and their mother. Uh, we don't know if they're still alive. They were alive when Hamas uh, got them, um, when Hamas uh, kidnapped them. Um, and 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 that's, that's the story. Uh, so there's quite a few bodies uh, that Hamas has, and probably... Two or three dozen, um, obviously, hopefully as high as possible, the number who are still alive. I uh, I I want to now move to the piece you wrote uh, for the for the Times of Israel, uh, which you titled "A Wounded Weakened." A wounded, weakened Israel is a fiercer one. The assault on Israeli towns was as cruel as Hamas could make it and every agonizing minute was broadcast to Israelis as a message and a humiliation. Now comes the Israeli answer. Can you explain to us why this was a, a, a humiliation by design? This was not just a, a military confrontation or a military attack or attempted military defeat, but it was, it was clearly designed to be a humiliation. And, and it, it sounds like what you're saying in this piece is that's exactly how Israelis fe- are feeling it. And that will, that will change what, what will be the, the, the form of the Israeli response. Yeah. Um, Hamas, I'm going to take it from the abstract down into the very, very uh, concrete. Um, Hamas has a theory of Israelis. Palestinian, the Palestinian National Movement for over a century, essentially, has had this theory of Israelis. And sometimes um, people call it colonialist um, uh, the, but but it has different terms. Palestinians used to call the Israelis uh, uh, imperialists and then colonialists and then uh, various other names. But the, they all share a basic idea that Israelis are rootless. They don't belong here. They're inauthentic. They are a European uh, project imposed for imperialist or colonialist reasons on the Middle East. And that theory is not um, just a, a, um, a put-down. That's not just an insult to Israelis. It is a strategic vision, and the strategic vision essentially says um, that the Israelis can be pushed out. Israeli Jews can be pushed out of Israel in the same way that other anti-colonial uh, projects were pushed out. The French were pushed out of Algeria in 1962 with an eight-year terror war by the National Liberation Front. The British were pushed out of Kenya by the Mau Mau uprising, right? There is this anti-colonial struggle. It, it, 
Everywhere it was tried, it was successful. All the colonialist projects in the 20th century collapsed in the face of this kind of violence. And, and the Palestinian vision from since the 20s and 30s, they've been saying this openly and discussing it, and it's, the great, it's sort of the grand strategy of, of the Palestinian national movement, is that Israelis will respond the way other colonialists have responded. And that drives uh, today Hamas's behavior. What is the actual point of the rocket fire? What is the point of the suicide bombings? Um, because Western supporters of Palestinians can't understand, they can't justify the act, and they don't understand the psychology behind it. They don't have a theory of mind of the Palestinians. They imagine that the story is despair, anger, an explosion of emotion. Um, Palestinians are as strategic as anybody else. They have emotion, they have folly, they have, but they have a vision of Israelis that tells them that this will work, and that's why it's justified. Um, the problem is, um, you know, if you want to call Israel colonialist as a as an epithet, you know, go for it if it makes you happy, enjoy, have fun. But as a as a diagnosis, as a just a, an analytical vision of Israel, it has a problem. You could kick the French out of Algeria because they had France to go to. You could kick the British out of Kenya because they had Britain to go to. If Israel is exactly what Palestinians claim it is, at the worst case scenario, right, and we are absolute evil and totally illegitimate and completely rootless and don't belong here and it's not our homeland and in some strange way my entire nation is somehow fake, which is Palestinian discourse on us and has been for a century, I still have nowhere to go. In other words, there is a hole at the heart of Palestinian strategy that they refuse to talk about. Because if I am what I actually am, which is a nation of refugees with nowhere else to go, all the terrorism is, is silly and meaningless. Long story short, that vision drove the thinking yesterday. Hamas arrived at every place that it got to. Something like 22 different locations saw Hamas massacring civilians. And, and it started massacring those civilians, and it uploaded videos of those massacres so that Israelis could see it. And the whole point was to show us that we're weak. When you show a colonialist that they're weak, when you raise the cost vastly higher than the benefit the colonialist perceives from their policies, the colonialist always leaves in every single situation. The problem is that Israelis, Israeli Jews, respond to weakness, to being shown their weakness, in the exact opposite way that colonialists generally respond. Because we are a nation of refugees with nowhere to go. That's our story. That's our national sort of collective consciousness. And so what Israelis just saw, and this is my argument, was that they are now much weaker than they expected. And they can and, and they're not safe. They're deeply vulnerable. And therefore if you are a people with nowhere to go who just faced this kind of an attack, you don't respond as if you're a colonialist and flee. You respond as if you are a weak, wounded tiger, incredibly dangerous for your weakness, because you will lash out much, much more aggressively than if you were not weak, than if you perceived yourself to be strong. Hamas just convinced Israelis that they're weak. And my argument is that weak, a weak Israel won't feel it can afford to be uh, precise in his pursuit of Hamas in Gaza. Won't feel it can afford to spend a lot of resources thinking about the humanitarian cost of a ground war. Won't feel it can afford to worry about anything other than having Saturday's events never happen again. And so an Israel that is now going to war is a very, very fierce Israel, made fierce by Hamas's success, not by Hamas having failed. 
Hamas and the Palestinian National Movement generally profoundly misunderstands us, and that's about to cost Hamas, unfortunately to cost just Gaza's population, uh, a great deal. So just, just to put this in historical comparison, we are accustomed to military skirmishes that turn into something much more than a skirmish on the Israeli-Gaza border, 2008, 2009, 2014, 2021. I mean, to, we can just go on and on and on with these every couple of years, it seems, going back to 2005, close to 2005, when Israel pulled out, uh, withdrew from Gaza. In, in fact, there hasn't been a real military, serious military invasion with serious you know, boots and and vehicles on the ground in Gaza since I think 2002 in the Sharon government, which was the last real battle uh, on the ground in Gaza that then was followed by Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005. And since then, there's been these skirmishes that were were mostly fought via special operations or from the air, but but nothing like a serious war. And can you just describe for us what pivoting off what you just said, what this therefore will look like. This is not, we are not, we are not accustomed to what we're about to see, is, um, is I think what you're saying. Yeah, uh, I don't want to predict too much. There's an enormous um, um, and very anxiety-ridden debate right now going on in Israel, whether this government really knows what it's going to do and wants and has a vision and has a strategy or is competent enough to develop it. The, the policy that Israel has adopted of um, managing Hamas, containing Hamas, having these periodic but very low-level uh, conflicts with Hamas, something Hamas seemed willing to do, something Israel seemed willing to do, that's essentially been the policy of the Netanyahu government from the very beginning, from 2009. Netanyahu is very averse to military conflicts. And that aversion has, until yesterday, been seen as... One of his great advantages, after the massive bloodletting and fear and terrorism of the Second Intifada of the 2006 Second Lebanon War, Netanyahu comes to power in 2009 promising Israelis what he called responsibility. That was his campaign theme. But what he meant by it essentially was, I'm not going to make peace, I'm not going to make war, I'm not going to invade, I'm not going to withdraw, I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to just... I'm just going to hold the line. Everything we have attempted. This is the Israeli narrative, right? And the Israeli experience. It's deeper than a narrative. Most Israeli Jews believe this and feel that this is what they experienced for the last 30 years. Netanyahu comes to power in 2009 saying, we tried the peace process. It ended in rivers of blood and 140 suicide bombings in our cities in dead children. We tried the unilateral withdrawal, and it ended in the Second Lebanon War. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis fleeing their homes for a month because tens of thousands of rockets fall on them, and nothing Israel does in Lebanon or Gaza can deter Hamas and Hezbollah from uh, firing those rockets. And so we're not going to try anything ever again, or at least not until something changes on the other side. That's Netanyahu. And the next decade, from 2009 to roughly 2020, are the most peaceful, quiet, lowest death toll in the history of Israel. Netanyahu is a man who took charge of a country with, you know, the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Israeli history is immensely interesting, mm. and it is a curse. Every three years, a war, constant conflict. Netanyahu then delivered Israelis, and the policy that achieved that, that decade of quiet, that decade of for Israel, relatively, the quietest period of our history, was this kind of 
quiet quid pro quo with Hamas, where there would be these very low-level conflicts. Uh, very low-level doesn't mean it's not a bad thing for people killed in a rocket volley or for Palestinians killed in Gaza in an Israeli airstrike. But it was very low-level compared to the capabilities of, of both sides. And that concept, that policy, if that whole policy gave us today then those 10 years were not the quietest years. Those 10 years were bought at the expense of what just happened. And so there's this view, and I think it is the mainstream view, and I think it is the view of the vast majority of the Israeli right, and I think it's the view of the vast majority of the Israeli left, that 10 years of quiet were bought at a cost that wasn't worth it. And now things have to be changed, and Israel has to act, and it's weak, and the enemy thinks it's weak, and that is what makes the enemy able to launch something like this. And so we have to explain to the enemy, I say that in air quotes, explain to the enemy uh, that Israel is not weak and that it can extract a cost for this Jewish blood that is, uh, that is too high uh, for the enemy to bear. And that is so broad of a consensus right now that I don't think this government, I, I don't want to say specifically, you know, wait three days, there's going to be the ground assault, and then in two weeks, there's going to be this, and then, in, you know, I, I don't want to give the details. I don't think the Israeli leadership really knows the details. There are many plans. They've been doing nothing else for the last, you know, 30 hours, but thinking about this stuff. Um, but, um, but, but I can tell you broadly that if this government doesn't now deliver a, a profound change in the situation on the ground that is felt by Israelis, uh, then this government will collapse. And it will collapse not for a day, not for uh, a week. The 73 war crushed the Israeli left for a generation. And, 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 and that's the scale of what we're looking at today. In terms of other actors in the region, and I, I don't want to come back specifically to the, to the days and weeks ahead and the war, but I just, for listeners to understand... The, the, the broader picture here. Obviously, there, there you, late, you explained how Hamas is viewing Israel as colonialists, and you can intimidate and humiliate colonialists out of their colonial-run territory, colonial-occupied territory in their, in their formulation. But there are motivations of other actors in the region. Do we, do we, to what extent do we think other actors in the region were involved in this, coordinated on this in some matters orchestrating this? The simple answer is that we don't know. There are a lot of clever people who say this is an Iranian-ordered uh, this is an Iranian-ordered effort by Hamas to disrupt Israeli-Saudi normalization. The problem is that this was prepared, they've been preparing this for years. Uh, and we know they've been preparing this for years because my own newspaper reported this kind of plan. Uh, this is exactly the Hezbollah plan. The Hezbollah has broadcast footage of its training to cross the border in multiple points, overwhelm Israeli border positions, take Israeli towns, massacre Israeli civilians. Hezbollah has produced videos it has uploaded to YouTube about this threat, and Hamas just carried it out. Um, and so um, it has been prepared long before, right? Um, Iran needed to prevent its isolation by the Israeli-Saudi normalization. Also, it might work out opposite to what they expect. It's not clear how that works out, right? If Israel now goes massively into Gaza and there's a high Palestinian death toll, that would be very uncomfortable for Saudi Arabia in terms of normalization with Israel for uh, a year. But the, the Saudis have vast interests, and Iran looms very, very large over them, and its nuclear program especially. Uh, and Israel, for them, is essentially a nuclear umbrella. And so a year later, right, I'll put it a different way, 
what the Saudis now need to see from Israel is not gentleness toward the Palestinians, but the capacity to change what is happening on the ground, power. And so if, if this is about disrupting Israeli-Saudi normalization, it might turn out to be the opposite. Israel may demonstrate the kind of strength that the Saudis are actually looking to see. And as soon as they can, from a PR perspective, they'll double down on normalization. All of these theories that it's... Uh, yeah, I even saw one expert suggest that it was Moscow. Um, Moscow has... Uh, Russia has come out um, not in favor of Hamas, but, but, but not critical of Hamas at all. Uh, and 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 is dependent in Ukraine on Iranian drones and right and so um, Russia is essentially on the other side of this now, uh, but Russia didn't give you know didn't give the order to Hamas. Uh, many many things happened all at once. Uh, this is very convenient for Iran. Iran helps fund Hamas. Hamas might have wanted to look useful to Iran by showing it can do successful operations and then get more support from Iran. Uh, Hamas has its own reasons for something like this. The leaders of Hamas, Mohammed Def, the military leader, and Yihya Sinwar, the political leader in Gaza, hate Israel. <laughs> it's, um, they hate Israel for deep ideological reasons. They've been massacring Israeli civilians for generations. Uh, and they hate Israel because Israel's retaliatory strikes against them have cost them dearly. Muhammad Def's family was killed in an airstrike against him, targeting him. He managed to survive, uh, terribly wounded, but still survived. Um, Yechia Sinwal sat in an Israeli prison for 22 years for planning deadly terror attacks against Israelis. Uh, they have their own reasons to launch something like this, to plan it, to launch it. They don't need any geopolitical you know, theory. So all of that's true, all at once. Um, Hamas also probably wants to take over Palestinian politics. Everyone is angling in domestic Palestinian politics for the day Mahmoud Abbas dies. There's going to be a Fatah Hamas civil war in the that's West That's in Bank. the West Bank. So when, right. when, when, when Abbas passes, uh, it's whenever he does, he's not a young man, in the West Bank, there will be a power play for his succession. And your, your point is Hamas is... Is positioning for that as well, which could be Hamas a just pulled off the single most spectacular Palestinian success in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And if you, if you understand Palestinian success in those in terms of Israeli death toll, which I, I think has consistently for a hundred years been a Palestinian catastrophe, but Palestinians don't ask me. In terms of what we could expect from the north, I know. What has happened so far today, coming from Hezbollah in the north? Because that is the fear, obviously, that Israel suddenly finds itself in a multi-front war. Yeah, everything Hamas has in Gaza, Hezbollah has tenfold. And Hezbollah has a, a rocket, uh, something like 140,000, 150,000 rockets in the villages, uh, under, obviously, the villages and homes of South Lebanon. Um, it has uh, those units trained uh, and and really that have be, had become apparently considered pretty pretty competent uh, military units trained in the Syrian civil war uh, that trained essentially for what Hamas just did, but all across the northern border. If Hezbollah comes in, and Hezbollah, by the way, has notified Israel through the Egyptians um, that if Israel has a ground invasion in Gaza, Hezbollah will start that war. Three days ago, the idea that Hezbollah would start a war with 140,000 rockets falling on Israeli cities would have given the Israeli government pause. Today, the idea that someone sits across our border with 140,000 rockets feels to Israelis like something you need to trigger before it's 240,000 rockets. In other words, if, 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 if the quiet is bought at the cost of worse events down the road, then quiet isn't worth it. And so I, I, Hezbollah is trying to threaten I believe Hezbollah is much weaker than it pretends. 
It is hated in Lebanon. Lebanon is collapsing in part because of Hezbollah, essentially co-opting Lebanese politics for Iranian purposes. And if Hezbollah brings that kind of war to Lebanon, and by the way, if it causes us the damage that Hezbollah claims it can cause us, then the damage we will have to cause back will be a kind that Lebanon will never again forgive Hezbollah. And so there is a, a, a bloody kind of mad logic that is coming into being before our eyes. But it will only come into being before our eyes if the Israelis express what they're feeling on the ground. And so, uh, you know, Hezbollah is playing this game where it, it, it fired a few rockets um, at, at Israel. Uh, it said, it put out a message that said it's in solidarity with Hamas, which is a way of it saying, we didn't mean to start a war, please don't start a war. Uh, and the Israelis responded with some artillery fire. Everybody is signaling quietly that they wanted to stay that way. That some, when you shoot a little bit on the Lebanese border, that's a message that we don't want a war. But there's a moment where that, you know, you pass that red line, you pass that tipping point, and, and the war begins anyway, right? Because nobody can afford to step back from the brink. Um, so yeah, so we're all watching for what happens. I am one of those Israelis who thinks that uh, a Hezbollah war, uh, if it must come, I don't know if it must come. I don't know if they're deterrable forever. Based on yesterday, I suspect not, and if it must come, let it come soon. The Israel that Hezbollah will face today is a different one from the one it would have faced on Friday. You mentioned that uh, we talked about the hostages, and you talked about how security forces that don't normally fight wars, like police and others, are are among those being killed or, or wounded. So in that sense, it is a very different war because Israel is, is fighting it on their territory, their territory rather than someone else's territory in a, in a very deep way, deep physically, meaning deep, deep geographically, deep into Israel. How does that change how the nature of Israel's response, A, and B, the question I keep wrestling with is, I don't think, and, and you'll know better than me, I don't think Israel has ever fought a war with this many hostages, certainly not in Gaza, uh, being held in on the in the territory that Israel has to go fight that war, which is to me is a dramatically new sort of theater and how it thinks about its theater uh, in in prosecuting its war. Not not in this non-conventional way, not in the hands of terrorists. I mean, there were POWs in the seventy-three war. The Syrians on the Golan overwhelmed the Israeli right, defenses, right. things like that. But those were uh, those were military POWs. But those were people in so Israelis right. in uniform, not women, right. children, grandmothers. Right. Hamas has just kidnapped children after killing their parents. That has never happened to us before. It was done for the shock. It was done because it is horrifying. That is the that was the rationale for doing it. That has not happened before. I don't understand Hamas. I mean, I think I understand Hamas. I really, they have this vision of, by proving the Israelis are weak, uh, the, the, the faithful will rally to the cause, and if the faithful believe, then Islam can do anything, and there's this great Islamic renewal coming, and Hamas is part of the Muslim Brotherhood vision of Islamic renewal, and all of I, I, you know, I... I have the academic understanding of what Hamas says and thinks about itself and how it understands in the grand strategy, its own strategy of cruelty, when it deploys that strategy of cruelty. It's not that I don't understand Hamas intellectually. But I don't understand why Hamas doesn't understand that we change. 
as long as we could buy our hostage uh, for a thousand prisoners, for a thousand prisoners with blood on their hands, who were released in the Shalit exchange back in 2011, for one single soldier of ours, as long as we could do that, have a prisoner exchange, and that would put our boy back in our hands, bring him back to his family, we'd do it. But if doing prisoner exchanges means they'll start kidnapping our children, then they have just ruled out prisoner exchanges, and they have created a new equation for us. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, this is, this is, I think this is an important point. They, so, so Gilad Shalit, Israeli soldier, was, was taken hostage in what year? Uh, Gilad Shalit was taken hostage in the summer of 2006, in June. That was Hamas's first tunnel yeah. attack that began the fighting in Gaza that on July escalated because of the Hezbollah attack on the north into the whole Second Lebanon War. He was held in Gaza for five and years. And the prisoner... Ex- yeah. Yeah, 2011, for, for something like 1,100, over 1,100 Palestinians released from right. Israeli prisons in return including for mass one Israeli murderers, soldier. Including mass murderers of Israeli civilians. And it, there was a lot of criticism of Netanyahu's decision to do that deal. Um, I supported that deal back in 2011. I should say that up front. I thought that our boy is worth it. Um, uh, we Israelis, um, our ethos, our basic understanding of ourselves is that until Israel was founded, uh, Jewish blood was cheap. And since Israel was founded, Jewish blood has been very, very expensive. And that's the theory. And, um, and it worked. This has been the safest period in Jewish, uh, history since, since, I don't know, you know, middle of the 19th century, since modernity. (laughs) And, um, that equation um, Hamas thought it understood. It understood that if it kidnaps another one, they'll get a thousand more, and if it kidnaps another one, it'll get ten thousand. It, kid- it doesn't matter how high it raises the cost. Um, it, you know, including people convicted in a in a criminal trial for mass murder and sitting in prison for six life terms, it'll get them out if it just kidnaps some Israeli. Until now. Until that means that it uh, is uh, engaged in mass kidnapping of children. Because if it's engaged in a mass kidnapping of children, basically until today, Israelis, the general Israeli public felt that Hamas is a tolerable, containable threat. The general Israeli public, you know, leave aside for the moment the chattering classes, the frenetic sort of popularity contest on Twitter, where everyone is convinced that if the other side is evil, then they win in some kind of cosmic sense. The ordinary Israeli public, the regular parents of Israel, now today, after what happened yesterday, believe that uh, that equation has to be completely upended. And if that means we lose those hostages, then it means we lose those hostages. But it means we burn a path to wherever they're being held. And we exact a cost that changes that equation. Because Hamas has made that equation essentially a target on our children. In terms of um, Israel in the days ahead, do you expect there to be a, a national unity government formed? Um, no, I, do, I don't think so. Um, I don't think a national unity government is, of course, I don't think so. It's a decision of exactly three people. So, you know, uh, it's easier to predict what a million people will do than what three people will do. But um, <laughs> the the... Yair Lapid. Just, uh, the three yeah. people are Netanyahu, Yair Lapid, and Benny That's Gantz. That's right. Opposition leader Yair Lapid, uh, Benny Gantz, who is this very centrist party, 
uh, leads a very centrist party and is polling quite well, even though he didn't do that well in the last election. He's polling much, much better now. Uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu at the head of this coalition, the, the prime minister and the head of the right uh, and of Likud. Um, Yair Lapid was the first to say we can have a coalition government, but it's a, it's a, he called it a professional coalition government. It's it's uh, Netanyahu of Likud, it's it's my party, Yeshatid, from the center-left, and it's the centrist uh, party of Benny Gantz, and that's it. You get rid of the far right from your coalition, we can leave the far left out, um, but it's a coalition to fight this war. The day after the war, we break apart. This is about fighting this war. And Netanyahu, of course, can't afford to jettison those far right uh, parties because he would then be with his opponents and they could at any moment topple him and force elections right after a catastrophic failure that's associated with him now. So Netanyahu replied by saying, no, 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 you can join our unity government in the way Menachem Begin joined the unity government right, ahead, right before the 67 war, which is he just joined it and the government didn't change. Um, in other words, I don't have to jettison the far-right parties that I need to remain in power after, right, the war. Um, so there was so j just for the historical context, Levi Eshkol, Levi Eshkol, 67, Prime Minister of Israel, fierce, fierce political opposition in the form of the Likud party headed by Menachem Begin. I mean, to but, call yeah. it fierce... In the run-up to the Six-Day War. The fierce opposition right. is, is, is an understatement. Sorry? Right. In In, I mean... I want just the background is in, in, in the days leading to the Six-Day War, to the 1967 war, everybody knew there was a war coming. Egyptian state radio was announcing that there was a war coming. There was a naval blockade on Israel, which is the most ancient casus belli, right? And um, and there, Israelis were digging mass graves in the middle of Tel Aviv. Yarkon Park in Tel Aviv had 13,000 mass graves dug because everyone expected a war. Nobody knew how bad it was going to be. And that's a moment where... Um, Levi Eshkol, uh, the left-wing Labour Party, asked, you know, for a unity government. Menachem Begin of the right-wing Cherut uh, or Likud Party uh, agreed and joined the government. He sat at the cabinet table. He didn't take a ministry. He was a very humble man personally. He was a minister without portfolio, just to sit in the government, just to stabilize Israeli politics, so that this war everyone saw coming, that the Egyptians announced they were going to launch, would have stable politics. And to send a message to the world. Right, right. And to send a message to the world that even if he, if Begin didn't have an operational role, I'm I'm standing here with my fierce political opponent, right? Because we are one people today, right? And uh, and uh, that was very successful move by Begin. But Netanyahu using that example today is essentially Netanyahu protecting himself politically the day after. It's about having a a war cabinet. Uh, with uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir of the Otsma Yodit party in it, which Yair Lapid can't afford to, to, to sit in. And so, um, long story short, without getting too much into the weeds for all the listeners, um, Yair Lapid can't afford to sit in the only government, unity government that Netanyahu can afford to, to have. The good news uh, is that uh, we don't need a unity government in that sense. There is nothing this government needs to do in Gaza or feels it needs to do in Gaza that former IDF chief of staff Benny Gantz uh, and center-left uh, leader Yair Lapid won't agree to, won't vote in the Knesset to, won't, you know what I mean? There's no, it's not like there's some budget the army's going to ask for that uh, the, the members of the opposition won't agree to vote for in some Knesset committee. So unity government, I think, is unlikely. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you about we Israel says it's it's at war, which it's never said in any of these uh, military skirmishes or co operations 
since it left Gaza in 2005. It's never used the term war. Israel is at war. You're laying out in this conversation what war could look like, which is different from anything we've seen before in its comprehensiveness and its and its um, sense of determination. And I think you mean also in sense of its endgame, which is there is no way Israel can live with the Gaza Strip governed by Hamas at the end of this war. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, Netanyahu... I, I think Netanyahu is, you know, when you do something a very, very long time, it's hard to not do it mentally. It's just a kind of pathway paved in your neurons. Netanyahu is always thinking politics. And I think even at this moment, he knows and understands very, very clearly uh, that this is his war. He This is at his feet from his own voters. In other words, he has been prime minister for, you know, since 2009, for 13 of the last 14 years. And this is his Gaza policy that has produced this result thus far. And so he needs to uh, show uh, that he can roll this back politically, or he won't survive politically, and that matters to him. So he got up and he said, uh, yeah, it took him hours to go to get on television. This was this whole event was already happening. Hamas's attacks were already five, six hours in before he put out a video of himself uh, in which he essentially said, I promise this will never happen again. I will do what it takes for this never to happen again. It was a very strange way to, to say it. It was not a successful public relations moment. Certainly not what Israelis needed to hear uh, in that horrifying moment with hours still to go of soldiers failing to arrive to save people, begging on social media to be rescued. Netanyahu's political position is desperate. Um, and 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 so a lot of his talk of war needs to be understood in that way. We don't yet know how this government's going to function. I can tell you there was a cabinet meeting yesterday evening, about 5 p.m. Israel time, um, in front of the cameras, and the generals were called in to brief the Israeli cabinet, which is two and a half dozen people. And there were leaks from the cabinet meeting, and it was all in front of the cameras of, of, of the minister of tourism and the, the minister of public diplomacy who didn't do a damn thing all day, excuse my French, um, complaining and arguing and bickering and debating and shutting each other up in the middle of this cabinet meeting while the... Yesterday was not the finest hour of the Israeli political class. So a lot of this talk of war, we don't know what it means. We, we just literally don't know what this government will actually do. It's not clear the government has any idea, even now, what it's going to do. The Israeli army was caught with his pants down yesterday, but the Israeli army is not incompetent, and it is not weak. And they had just called up um, dozens of battalions, entire divisions, and there's well above 100% call-up, 100% showing-up rate for these reservists. We've been talking about judicial reform and how a lot of, a lot of Israelis said they were no longer going to serve in reserves because they were angry at the government and afraid that democracy was, was collapsing. Uh, they're all there, and the the reservist movement, they call themselves comrades at arms, who was pushing for Israeli soldiers to stop doing reserve duty because Israel was turning into a dictatorship, as they put it, um, put out a statement about three hours after the start of the Hamas operation yesterday uh, that everybody goes to do reserves because this is an outside enemy. Remember when we talked last time, I said... Just, just to be clear, the, the organization Brothers in Arms urged the reservists that they had been organizing to, to boycott their reserve training and the reserve service, they put out a statement saying, reservists turn out. So what was all that about? No, the and they put out WhatsApp. The, the they whole, established the a WhatsApp moved. group helping people find units in case their own unit isn't called up, but they can't stand not going to. There are Israelis banging down the doors of the army call-up offices to get into a unit to go into to, to this war. Hundreds of thousands. 
Um, and, the, and we're seeing that. So, yeah. So, so just on that, I mean, I, and again, I don't want to dwell on, it's, it's not the time for, for the impact of the judicial reform crisis and the debates. It's not the time for that right now. But I am, this one particular piece I found most striking, because when I saw the Brothers in Arms statement, I thought, so, so the whole pressure tactic of, of, of telling the Israeli government we will organize reserves to not show up for training, what was the, I mean, was, was that all just never to survive the first yeah, the first point of the first contact, time they needed you know, the first the first military confrontation where you actually need them reserves. Well, what I argued last time, um, both in the newspaper and also I think in our conversation, was that uh, this is a this is a vocabulary for talking about fundamental things. The solidarity uh, that military service represents for Israelis is a way of saying this matters. This is big. You're breaking something. You don't see what you're breaking. I want you to know you're breaking the most fundamental things. And so saying I'm not going to show up to fight is saying that, is saying you're breaking our solidarity in a way that I would be breaking it if I wasn't showing up to fight. The moment the enemy comes to the gate, the, the call-up is 110%. And so that, that, that should make it clear what that was back then. But, but the enemies could have misunderstood it. You know, they could have, they could have uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, Tehran could have, could have um, really misunderstood misjudged yeah exactly the enemy always misunderstands it we have an enemy that thinks our democracy is our weakness we have an enemy that thinks that the fact that we would give a thousand so a thousand uh prisoners including mass murderers for one single soldier uh is a weakness we have an enemy that thinks that the fact that every one of those soldiers uh that is begging to be called up uh knows that they want to protect their families and their country and that they know that all the rest of the country will protect their family and so they're willing to go fight and risk their lives for everyone else's families thinks that that's a weakness and we have an enemy that has managed to be convince itself that we are weak for 75 years of our prosperity and success and strength and 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 i am if if i any day in which the iranian leadership or the hamas leadership are convinced that i'm weak i'm doing something right i i, I don't worry and i i don't ask israeli protesters to worry about what the enemy thinks because the enemy has misunderstood us every step of the way for a century and a half. Last question for you, uh, uh, Haviv, is there's a, there's a tendency to compare this to previous fights, previous military operations in Gaza, but as this conversation, I hope, makes clear, this, this one will be much different. It will be probably in some form unrecognizable. That said, in all these previous operations against Gaza, as was the case in the in the 2006 Lebanon war, there is the, the moment operations, Israeli operations start, there is a there's a clock that starts ticking. And what I mean internationally, meaning it was very moving over the weekend to see the Brandenburg Gate. I don't know if you saw that image of the yeah. Brandenburg Gate in Germany with the Israeli flag and the in the president's prime minister's home in in Rome with the Israeli flag and the I mean, and not just the Israeli flag, very powerful, illuminated image that was, you know, visible in, in most parts of the city. Uh, and you could see this in just the expressions of solidarity from around the world with Israel. And it's very moving and it's very inspiring. And I think it's authentic. However, things, once the Israeli response starts to kick in to high gear, that'll be the true test of that solidarity uh, because um, things will rightfully get very aggressive uh, in, in terms of the response, appropriately, 
uh, very quickly. And that's what I mean by the clock starting to tick, because at some point, wise, quote unquote, air quotes, wise uh, leaders from from around the world, the UN Security Council and Western capitals and, you know, finance ministries and chancelleries start talking. It's, quote unquote, time for diplomacy. It's time for diplomacy. And I, I feel, you know, my sense is there. this is not a time for diplomacy. That would be like after 9-11. If you compare this in proportional terms to 9-11, uh, this would be like, you know, not, not 3,000 Americans being killed, but tens of thousands of Americans being killed on a single day in its, on its territory with, with, with terrorists still roaming inside the United States, killing more people. It, it would be like at that moment... As soon as the U.S. began its response, international leaders starting to say, "Well, it's it's time for diplomacy." You just it's 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 unimaginable. It wouldn't have happened, uh, and and I fear that we are going to hear that soon. And I I think it's very important to establish now, very early, that there the time for. The time for diplomacy is no time soon. It, it, just, it shouldn't even be in the conversation. There is a war. And I just, I guess my question for you is what do you, th- you know, apparently President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu had a very good conversation yesterday where the President Biden agreed to everything the Prime Minister Netanyahu asked for, including, and most importantly, time and space. Give me the time and space to do what I need to do. But, you know, we, we often hear that. In 2002, with, you know, George W. Bush and Condi, they were supportive and stood in solidarity with Israel dealing with Gaza until it was the time for diplomacy. We talked about 2006. There was a time for diplomacy. We hear this all the time. Are, are, are leaders in Israel thinking through how to establish publicly, not just in their private conversations with leaders, publicly, there will be no time for diplomacy? I want to say one thing, and I think um, it reflects something every Israeli understands instinctively, uh, but it's hard to see from the outside. Ever since the founding of the Zionist movement, before the founding of the Zionist movement, the very earliest Zionist proto-thinkers, the 1880s, the early 1880s, people like uh, like Pinsker wrote a book called Auto-Emancipation. This was an East European Jew who was really excited about uh, the new liberalism, the new parliamentarism, Russian reforms in the Russian Empire, uh, the, the, the general trend of modernization and liberalization. And after the beginning of the mass pogroms in the East in 1881, with the, after the Tsar was killed by anarchists, um, he turned against that idea. He thought that actually the Jews did not have a future in Europe and that the Jews had better find a way out and and... He wrote a book called Auto-Emancipation. You don't get emancipated by others. You emancipate yourself. Ever since Pinsker, and throughout all the thinkers and the builders and the refugees who actually built modern Israel, there's been this thread, this founding ethos that defines us more than anything else. And it is the ethos that we no longer live at the pleasure, at the agreement, with the support of anybody else. Jews don't ask for permission not to be safe, not to be alive, not to be any of it. That is what Israel is. It isn't anything else but that. 
And that's created a culture that sometimes hurts us. For example, we're very bad at explaining ourselves. We're incredibly bad at it. This uh, Israeli state has founded a ministry of public diplomacy something like six times. And then it never quite knows what to do, and it disbands itself. <laughs> and Israelis don't tell their story. They don't like to tell their story. They don't want the sense that there's something they need to explain to the rest of the world. Because it violates that deep-seated ethos that Jews don't live at other people's acceptance. There is no popularity contest between Israelis and Palestinians. The illusion of a popularity contest has done terrible damage to Palestinians because the world doesn't actually care. International community pretends to care. It cares as much as it needs to care to feel righteous, and then it stops. And that sense, uh, the Israeli sense of the world, the sense of the world built by the experience of the last 150 years, basically, um, is deep, and it makes it hard for me, me, sitting here now, I am testifying to my own mental state after yesterday. This is a hard conversation for me, because I feel like I, I want to teach the world about my people, but I don't want to justify my people to the world, because I refuse the very idea that my people need justification. You want to understand us? Happy to explain. You don't like it? You're welcome not to like it. You like us? Great, I like us. <laughs> you know, but that's it. That's the relationship. The political window for an operation in Gaza depends on many things. One of them is the international community. It's really important to convey how little willingness there is among the Israeli public today. After watching those little children tormented in Gaza, in videos uploaded by laughing Hamas fighters. How little interest the Israelis, who are already primed by their history, not to care what the world thinks, not to believe in the world, not to believe there is such a thing as an international community, to think of the idea of an international community as, 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 as a way for the powerful and the safe to, to speak about their power and safety in moral terms, but not actually to step out into the world and defend the weak and defend the, the, the world, by the way, does nothing for Palestinians just as much as it does nothing for Jews, just as much as it does nothing in, to, to the Bosnians or to the Rwandans or to the Uyghurs or anybody who is ever threatened. The whole concept in the Israeli mind, especially at a moment like this of an international community that has to be that has to be, you know, on your side, or you can't act, is, is, is a concept that, that, that is part of a kind of narcissistic, internal, Western, safe uh, uh, discourse about their own, about Westerners' own safe morality. It's, I've heard scholars talk about the liberal gaze, the liberal gaze out into the world. Well, that's part of that liberal gaze, and it is not okay, and it is not legitimate, and most importantly, it makes you fail to understand what's about to happen. Israelis care what the world thinks of them, right up until they don't. And Hamas has pushed them now to that point. They don't. And so there is a political window. But Netanyahu, Netanyahu has two audiences. He has that international audience. He has the Israeli audience. The Israeli audience matters. The international one doesn't. He must satisfy the basic Israeli need for this to change, for the basic framework on the ground to change. This Hamas cannot exist after this. Our children cannot be scared to go to sleep at night. This cannot happen. And that has to change. And the pro-Palestinian listeners to this podcast, if there are, or tweeters out there, will say, well, Palestinians get to sleep well at night. 
Absolutely they get to sleep well at night. You know who's preventing them to sleep well at night? You know who oppresses them in Gaza? Let's call Israel the worst possible things we can call them. You know who's right up there with Israel? The oppressors of Hamas, who have kept Gaza... You, you, it is impossible to convey how much Hamas is hated in Gaza. Uh, just like Hamas wins the poll, the, any poll that you do in the West Bank for you know, between Fatah and Hamas, Hamas keeps winning those polls. If you do that poll in Gaza, Hamas loses. Palestinians are convinced Hamas has decimated them and decimated Gaza. In 2013, Gaza's under Israeli blockade, but not under an Egyptian one. And then Egypt descends into a civil war between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Egyptian army. And Hamas enters that civil war. It drags beleaguered Gaza into a civil war on its last open border. Until 2013, you could get KFC in Gaza from El Arish. After 2013, the army wins that war. And the army shuts that border. And doesn't just shut that border. It demolishes a neighborhood along the border to clear a border zone that it can keep shut. And it floods with sewage the 1,500 tunnels that Hamas built under that border for smuggling. And it seals the border tight because Hamas is now an enemy of Egypt. You care about Gazans, you cannot support Hamas. And if you do support Hamas, then you care about your own morality. You don't care about Gazans. About your own moral emotions. You don't care about Gazans. And so Hamas is the factor in this equation that has to change. And you know what? Dear world and dear world's deep moral emotions, once Hamas is the factor that's changed, come after us. Go for it. Pressure us. Boycott us. Hate us. Scream at us. Do whatever you want. Build that psychological pressure as high as you want it to go. Because until Hamas is out of the equation, you're not pressuring me. You're not competing with my own desire to, to continue my own policies. You're competing with Hamas. You're telling me pull out of the West Bank. Hamas is telling me I'm going to do this to you from the West Bank, which is 16 times the size of Gaza. If you don't understand, dear pro-Palestinian activist who wants to boycott Israel, that you're competing with Hamas for space in my psyche, then you don't understand anything that's happening here. So Israelis will not accept, certainly not because of some international community, which is never there to save you, no matter who you are, that this equation remains after today, after yesterday. And if you support Palestinians and you want Hamas to win this, then either you're an idiot or you're just cruel. Haviv, uh, we will leave it there. Uh, that was quite quite powerful. Um, I, uh, this is, I, I know it's a, Brutal, brutal. Every day, these ne yesterday, today, the next days will be brutal uh, for you. So um, I, I, really great, grateful for you taking the time uh, to help us understand. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. And um, and uh, I, I hope if if you have the time, we we can get you back on because I, I just think your your voice as always, is extremely important, and we'll keep uh, posting wh whatever you're writing, and, um, and be safe. Thank you. That's our show for today. If you want to keep up with Haviv Retigur, which I highly recommend, you can find him on the website formerly known as Twitter, at Haviv Retigur. And, of course, you can also find his reporting and his analysis at Times of Israel, timesofisrael.com, or at Times of Israel. And be sure to listen to our next episode 
with Brett Stevens, which will be posting Monday morning. Call Me Back is produced by Alon Benatar. Until next time, I'm your host, Dan Senor. Mm-hmm.